Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, Nature Nerds. It's Megan sitting across from my co-host, Jen, who will be telling our story today. Hello. We don't really have any announcements, so I'm going to just head straight into the science news. All right. So I found this science news on IFL Science because it's my favorite. And actually, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in the news about women's reproductive health and all of this and laws and just fun stuff. So I found this. It's called Spain set to become Europe's first country to offer period pain leave for work. What? So it was actually written May 13th by Tom Hale. It says Spain's Ministry of Equality, I didn't even know they had one of those, that's pretty cool, is looking to pass a law that will offer days off for workers experiencing painful and incapacitating periods. And that is kind of amazing. When are we moving to Spain? Actually, it's part of a reform that they're working on about abortion and reproductive health. And they're drawing it up right now in this Ministry of Equality. Can we just, I love that name, Ministry of Equality. Yes. And I guess there was a leak of the draft and it shows that the ministry is hoping to allow three-day sick leave due to painful and disruptive periods under medical supervision. So I don't know exactly what that means. It sounds a little bit like you would have to have a doctor sign off on this maybe. Mm -hmm. I just think about as we've gotten older, sometimes your flow can get a little nuts as the different hormones rage through your body. Periods? Ladies have periods. We don't like to talk about that. It's disgusting. It's a thing. More people should talk about menstruation, honestly. Honestly. There's this study that says 53% of women suffer from painful periods. Younger people, it's Uh actually higher. 74% of women of young girls. I don't think it's more painful for young girls. I think Mm. they're just like, what the... What's what the happening? hell? Yeah. This is pain. I hate this. They're just like, <laughs> why is this happening? They went from being able to run around, do whatever they want all the time during the month to like... Sucky time. Yeah. And then the thing is, is that I think then people, they just get used to it. And they're like, well, this sucks every month. So I guess I'm just used to it. And they start taking ibuprofen or whatever. Yeah. And so feel. they deal, mm-hmm. right? So you don't hear as many complaints. You don't hear as many complaints. And then later, when you get older, it just gets more sucky. Gets more gross. Yeah. And Angela Rodriguez, who's the Secretary of of State for Equality, said, it is important to clarify what a painful period is. We are not talking about a slight discomfort, but about serious symptoms such as diarrhea, severe headaches, fever. Wow. When there is a disease that entails these symptoms, a temporary disability is granted. Therefore, the same should happen with menstruation and that there's a possibility that if a woman has a very painful period, she can stay home, she continued. I guess it's like the same thing as having a cold. I mean, I would say that, yeah, there are symptoms of especially those first two days that are just you don't want to get out of bed. Bad news. Bad news. Not cool. They believe that when the problem cannot be solved medically, we believe that it is very sensible that there's a temporary disability associated with the issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing is you see all these European countries with paternity leave, maternity leave, because we care about the health of the mother and the child. Yes. And so we want to help with all these things. It's wonderful. We're moving to Spain. I think that's what you're saying. That's basically what I'm saying. I should have done it before I had kids. I got to learn Spanish. 
it's all good. Um, so there is some solid evidence that justifies this proposal that they have. A 2019 study published in the British Medical Journal looked at how menstruation-related symptoms affected work and education of 32, 748,000 women in the Netherlands aged 15 to 45 years old. It concluded that almost 14% of respondents have taken days off due to their period, while over 3% said that they have to take days off almost every menstrual cycle. And then they said that when they called in sick to their employers, 20% felt comfortable enough to tell their employer or their school Mm -hmm. that it was because of a menstrual cycle. So I feel like a lot of this has to do with the fear of talking about menstruation Mm -hmm. or that it's dirty or whatever. Embarrassing. Embarrassing, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then part of Spain's draft law also is looking to make menstrual hygiene products free in all public buildings. And then they're going to start looking at the taxation that's on those products for like sanitary pads, tampons, Mm -hmm. menstrual cups, whatever. I'm trying to make it more affordable for everybody. It's kind of, I mean, it feels as a woman a little bit revolutionary. I know. It does. So I just wanted to share that. Wow, we're being accepted for who we are completely and wholly. Only in Spain. But only in Spain. Well, I feel like some other countries are are there, but yeah. It's Mm. just very cool. I hope that it goes through. You know, it might have some changes that happen, but there are some parts of it where they talk about in this particular bill that they're going to be giving people, women, females from the age of 16, the permission to get an abortion without having their parents sign off on it. So I think that might be a part of the bill that's a little bit controversial that they're feeling like they need to rework or whatever. But Mm. I still feel like this is a great move. We're way behind on everything. Yeah. It's all it's all good. Well good on Spain. I hope you guys enjoyed that science news. I know it's not again it's like my COVID science news at one time. Not about an animal necessarily, but we are animals. And we talk about menstrual cycles in uh female animals all the time. So it shouldn't right. be something we it, don't talk about. Well, it shouldn't be something that we can't talk about and exactly. it shouldn't be something embarrassing or weird. Yeah. We need to normalize me. this. Agreed. Yeah. Because it's 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 normal. It's normal. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Um so I'm excited to hear your story today, Jen. Well, you know, when we talk about America. America. America and all the things that happened, that's pretty much what this story is today. It's a old American tale of the Westward Movement. This story was recommended by one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. We got an email or a form from Tracy Simpson from Minnesota. Minnesota. Hi, Tracy. She's like, you can say where I'm from because it's cool to know where people are listening from. And I was like, 100% agree. There we go. She sent us a little while ago. I did send her an email and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this story. So I hope she enjoys. So she recommended that we listen to the book, The Blue Tattoo, The Life of Olive Oatman, published in 2009 by Margot Mifflin. I know you want to say something about Mifflin. But anyway, we are now following Margot on Instagram. Oh, hey. She's got some other books. But uh, so I did listen. I listened to this book on Audible because sitting down and being able to read, it's just not in my my life right now. Your wheelhouse? It's not part of what I can do. You don't have available time just to sit and read books? I wish. I listened to this book. It was really good. Let me let me just say right now before we get into this that mm-hmm. I am no historian. Oh, I, will, I, I will not claim to be an historian. So as I go through this, please do not be like, that's not historically correct because I'm following what, you know, what I listen to and mm-hmm. trying to retain everything. But then I also read through a bunch of different things. And let me just tell you, there are so many different accounts of everything. Yeah. Historically. 
you know, that you can find online, whether it's like a published in a journal even or on people's, you know, different historical websites. So I did my best. I really tried to follow, stick with what the book, what she had, because I felt like it was pretty well researched and made sense Mm -hmm. logically. But there's some other things I'm going to rush through because this does talk a lot about Native Americans. I remember taking history in elementary school Mm -hmm. and it was just like, well, the Indians made clay pots and they were this. And I grew up in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. and they talked about it as though it was okay. Right. And then, you know, so, and when I got in college and I don't remember high school, (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) anything I learned in high school, but when I got in college, I took a history class and we actually read the book Sitting Bull Mm -hmm. and read a lot. And I was just like this, I hate. It's awful. I hate being white. (laughs) Yeah. I hate how I feel about this. There's a lot, but I, I really suggest if you don't know much about it or if you're, you know, not from the U.S. or if you are from the U.S. and you just don't know, you should really read up on some of this. But there is a lot of different information. And I suggest really trying to look at what information is coming out from the different tribes, mm. because that's probably more historically more accurate, accurate yeah. than the whitewashed version. Sure. And not, not, not to say that there aren't white people who are really digging for the real story. That's for mm. sure out there. But, you know, you just got to like read a lot and consider your sources. And Anyway. All right. Colonizers. That's right. Oh, boy. So Olive Ann Oatman was born on September 7th, 1837 in La Harpe, Illinois. She was one of seven siblings to Marianne and Royce Oatman. They were a Mormon family. So in 1850, they joined this wagon train led by James C. Brewster. And I think you'll you'll kind of like remember hearing about the Brewsters or Brewsterians or whatever. He was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They had a lot of disagreements with church leadership in Salt Lake City, Utah caused him to break with followers of Brigham Young. They were like, let's go to California. He claimed that it was, you know, their place that they were supposed to go. You know, there was all this manifest destiny happening during this time. Definitely. And I just want to talk about that really quick because the time that she was born and when all this kind of happened, there was a lot that had happened and was happening Mm. as far as like immigrants moving across what is now known as the United States. For those who don't know, the original boundaries of the United States were set by the Treaty of Paris in 1783. So that was when the colonists won their independence from England and during the American Revolution. So that was kind of like that whole kind of East Eastern part of what we now know as the U.S., right? Right. And then in 1803 was the Louisiana Purchase. That was when Thomas Jefferson bought land from Napoleon Bonaparte. Right for like, I don't know how many millions of dollars. Like two cents. And then Florida, the wing of the U.S., <laughs> was acquired from the Spanish in 1819 as part of this adams onus Treaty. And I'm saying acquired from yeah. Spain because... It was stolen. It was already... Let's just... Let's just say that a bunch of, you know, people came over from other places and drew lines. Then in 1845, there was the Texas annexation. They say that Texas willingly became a part of the U.S. just nine years after the rebelling against Mexico and becoming its own country. Then there was the Oregon acquisition. So that was kind of like the North, you know, Oregon, Washington. They say the U.S. negotiated with England or Great Britain to divide the Oregon territory between the two countries. So the U.S. took the southern half and England took the northern half. Mm. Then there was the Mexican-American War, and the outcome of that was that Mexico gave the U.S. 
nearly half its land, which resulted in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Which So that was when there was all like basically California, Nevada, New Mexico, that mm-hmm. whole area. And then there was the Gadsden Purchase in 1853. So remember 1853, this Gadsden Purchase was when the United States purchased some more land from Mexico because they needed to complete this railroad, basically. Mm. So they're like, we also need this. I actually included a map, but there's good ones and better ones. You need to purchase them because there's different tribes who have made maps showing the original lands of all the indigenous Native Americans and where they actually were Uh, (laughs) over this whole area. Yeah. Okay, so back to Olive and her family. So this wagon train had about, originally about 90 Brewsterites. They had left, they'd went to Illinois, down to Missouri. So a bunch of them came from Missouri too in 1850. And so they were going to go along to the Colorado River in Southern California, follow it up into California, basically. Mm. So the group had kind of split at a point the Oatmans and a couple other families decided to go the Southern route through Socorro, which I'm not sure what that is, and Tucson, which I definitely know where that is. The other ones went further north. And at the time, there was so much propaganda. And I think we talked about this when we talked about the Donners. Oh, okay, yeah. Which we covered that in October. Did we talk about it around Halloween time because it was so it creepy? It was cold. I think it was after Halloween, but like, yeah, it was cold time. Okay. I kind of talked about this a little, that there was, there was a lot of people that were being misinformed Mm. about going West. Right. They're like, it's easy. It's no big deal. It's going to be great. A lot of people were told it's going to take three to four months to get to California. Actually, it was more like eight to nine months, sometimes longer, depending, Mm -hmm. because things happen, right? Yeah. And they really didn't talk about all the obstacles going through the desert. They didn't talk about Native American attacks. Yeah. And it, it definitely was happening. So once they got near a city called Socorro, which is in New Mexico, mm-hmm. 74 miles south of Albuquerque, just to give some reference reference to uh, people who know where Albuquerque is. When they reached the New Mexico territory, it was early 1851. It was really rough going. Uh, They're like, wow, the desert is really kind of sucky because we don't really know anything about it or how to like survive. Sure. So they were running out of food. They mm-hmm. were running out of supplies. Can you imagine with seven kids? Nope. They were not They were not doing so well. Let me just say, if you really want all the details as I go through this, read the book or listen to it. She goes into much more depth on this stuff. So when they reached Maricopa Wells, they found out that the trailhead was pretty rough and that there were hostile, I'm using air quotes, Indians. Right. Because that's what they called them back then. But like the people who lived there. The people who actually lived like, there. Don't trespass, please. Yeah. I, I just, I, as I read through a lot of this stuff, they're like, and these, you know, these tribes were so this and that. And I'm like, but yeah. But you like came up into their yard, man. You kind of just took everything. You just walked right through. I mean, it's just so rude. Right. So the other families were like, hey, look, we're just going to stay here mm. because we're thinking that's not a good way to go. We don't want something bad to happen to us. Yeah. So we're just going to hang here. But Royce was like, no, I have this. You know, he was like... Told by God. Set. Yeah. Yes. No, he had this vision and he wanted to get his family there. He was determined. He was like, I want to build this future for my family. We'll be fine. Yes, God is looking over us. Mm -hmm. Him and his wife, Marianne, and their seven children. And not to mention, she was eight months pregnant. Oh, wow. Eight months pregnant. Very pregnant. Yes. And they ranged from one to 17 years old. So let me run through that really quick. The oldest was Lucy. 
Oatman, she was 17. Lorenzo was 15. Olive was 14 at the time. Marianne, seven. Charity Ann was five. And Roland was one years old. And then, of course, she was eight months pregnant. So it's like nearly another kid, almost. On their fourth day at traveling out of Maricopa Wells, Mm. they were approached by a group of Native Americans that were asking for tobacco and food. Mm. But they didn't have anything. Yeah. So Royce was like, you know, I... We don't have anything. I've got this family. We don't have anything to share. And it was actually, at the time, it was a group of Yavapais that were from kind of around that area. She called them Apaches later, but they were actually Yavapais. The Yavapais got really irritated with them and ended up attacking them. Mm -hmm. And on February 18th, 1851, they pretty much clubbed and stabbed the whole family to death. All except 14-year-old Olive and 7-year-old Marianne. So they took off their shoes, collected everything they could, collected everything they could. They tied up the girls and they made them walk. Like I said, she later, when she wrote about it, called them Tonto. They were the Tonto Apache tribe. Actually, they were a Tolkapaya tribe, which are Western Yavapais. And they had their village was about eight miles southwest in Arizona. And it's in the, I don't think I'm going to say this right. Eight miles southwest of where those people were murdered? Yeah, I think so. They were in these. Harqualhalla Mountains, but they had to walk the whole way with no shoes. Imagine 14 and 7. And in the book, she talks about how her sister was behind her just sobbing Mm -hmm. and like had like snot coming down her like face because she was just... Imagine they just saw their whole family murdered. Yeah. Just beaten and stabbed. And their little kids... Everything that meant safety to you is gone. And, And so insanely like frightening. I mean, they had... They were completely traumatized, PTSD, their little kids. Mm-hmm. It wasn't their choice to go there. Yeah. They're just going with their parents. You mm-hmm. know, they're just there. They're just victims, you know? I yeah. mean, they're completely innocent, right? Yeah. Their feet are bleeding. They're in pain. They're hungry. In some accounts, it says that they offered them food, but they wouldn't eat. They get to the village. It didn't go so well. They were treated as slaves. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it talks about how this tribe in particular didn't have a lot. So it was weird for them to take these slaves or captives mm-hmm. because they really couldn't feed extra mouths. But what they did was make them work. They worked hard for their food and water and they helped with everything. But yeah, they were not, they were beaten. They mm-hmm. didn't understand the language. They got made fun of. When they didn't understand what they were being told, they got beaten some more. Mm-hmm. And this kind of went on like that for a while. Until eventually they kind of started picking up the language and then they started being a little nicer to them. I think they were just like these little kids. But a lot of times Native Americans would take captive white, you know, these white settlers Mm -hmm. to trade, you know, because a lot of times these white settlers were taking a lot of Native Americans. And so they would hold them to either get something back or to get things they needed, Mm -hmm. horses or blankets or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they already, I feel like a lot of settlers showed their hand when they did horrible <laughs> things to Native tribes. Exactly. And they're like, well, you're going to treat us this way, then... This is what it is. We yeah. don't like you. And yeah. this is what we're going to do. So, but over time, they kind of warmed up to the girls and they would ask them questions about white colonizers and their customs. <laughs> and they they were okay. After about a year of this, the daughter of a Mojave chief named Espanol which wasn't his, I think that's what he was called, but I think he had an actual Mojave name. Name. She came to do some trading 
with, her name was Topeka and she came to do some trading. And a lot of the Native Americans went to different tribes Mm -hmm. and traded goods. That was part of what they did. And so she came over, she saw the girls and she was kind of felt sorry for them. And the way that Olive talks about her is that she was very kind and beautiful and very respectful. And the way she talked to the people was so good. Mm-hmm. Like she just had, a, she kind of admired her from the beginning right, right. on how she handled her relations with the tribe. So at that time, she tried to make a trade for the girls. Oh. Because she saw them. She's like, I feel sorry for them. She could tell they weren't being treated very well. Mm. And she wanted to take them. But they said no. So she went back. This time she offered two horses, some vegetables, blankets, and beads. Because the Mojaves were actually, they were a bigger tribe and Mm -hmm. they had a lot, you know. So she, and she really wanted them. And she, like I said, she was very good at, you know, talking to them. And so after that, they were like, okay, you can, you can take them. So she did. She took them and they had to walk for a few days again. But this time they gave them like something to put on their feet. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I think they started out barefoot and they were like this socks and they're like oh sorry and they put something on their feet because a lot of the Mojaves didn't wear like the typical moccasin type shoe they wore they were either barefoot or wore sandals like I said they walked for days to the Mojave village along the Colorado River the Mojave leader at the time like I said his name was Espanol and this was the daughter Mm -hmm. and so when they brought the girls to when she brought the girls to her dad and her mother's name was Espanol sorry Espanillo I Mm. think it is they immediately were like yes give us these kids we like them we'll take them yeah and Topeka was she was really into them years later Olive really talked about how much she loved these people Mm. although we'll come to find out she doesn't say much ever right it's really there aren't a lot of facts true facts coming from her because she just I think she just kind of shut down that because she had to it was like survival mode Anyway, they loved them so much, they actually gave them land to farm. Oh, wow. Which, as we know, kind of like in where we were in the Peace Corps, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. There was an interview later of a historian from that area that said that Olive was most likely fully adopted into the tribe because she was also given nicknames um, and by giving the land that she was most likely her and her sister were fully assimilated into the tribe. That's cool. They said that the Mojaves, this is a quote from Alfred L. Krober, who wrote an article about her captivity, that the Mojaves always told her she could go to the white settlements when she pleased, but they dared not go with her, fearing there might be they might be punished for having kept a white woman for so long among them, nor did they dare to let it be known that she was among them. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Mojaves, and this is just some information I got from National Park Service. There's very little to be found. And mostly in the book, she uh, talks about how they lived. And it's, like I said, listen to the book, you'll get more details than you're going to get here. But anyway, they were called the people who live along the water. They're Native American people, indigenous to Colorado River and the Mojave Desert. They're human speaking farmers. And they traditionally, like I said, resided along the Colorado River, which is now the U.S. states of Arizona, California, And then it goes into Mexico. In the book, she talks about how they were pretty funny and jovial and they liked to laugh and tease a lot. They were also very much believed in dreams and visions. She talks about how they would rely on the children and as they grew, that the kids would have dreams that would basically kind of tell them 
what they were going to do. Like if they were going to be a warrior or a medicine person or, you know, like it was kind of like dreaming about your job. They believe so strongly in it that that's where they would end up. Section people often. Yes. Right. Right. The other cool thing is they were also one of the tribes that believed in a two-spirit person. So they did not assign gender roles to children until they actually went through puberty and decided who they wanted to be. That's amazing. So they definitely believed in sex, you know, like male, female, Mm -hmm. like based on your anatomy. Sure. But they didn't assign a gender. They had names for these two gender variant roles Mm -hmm. for males and females. And the, the child's family would actually prepare a ceremony to announce it to the community if they chose a gender variant role that was different than their what they were born with. And mm-hmm. it was very accepted. They believed that any other person, they had no control over their inclination. If it was born female, that as they grew older, they decided they didn't like those roles that were assigned to that a gender. A gender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be a warrior or do something else. And it was totally okay. And they were also highly respected because they were believed to possess spiritual powers and have a deep understanding of both sexes. Oh, wow. There was no teasing. Whatever gender roles you chose, men can marry men, and they didn't see it as homosexuality. Right. That was just who they were. Right. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Also, they were very sexually free. They were very like, they encouraged young people to just have a lot of sex. Just get it out of your system. (laughs) Know all the things. Do all you want to do. Yeah. Because they did practice monogamy. Mm. Because they did have sex outside of marriage. And it was typically okay. okay, Which in a lot of tribes, that wasn't okay. Kind of like a polyamory situation. A little bit. Yeah. It was just that, you know, they're like, hey, man, you do you, you know? It's all good. It's all good. So because they were like the fun people, they were very open-minded, very spiritual. But they also could be very fierce Mm -hmm. and very much protective of their land and their territory. Mm -hmm. But they also traveled a lot. They went to the Pacific coast. They were very good traders. Like I mentioned, they exchanged with coastal tribes for like goods for their crops. And they did, they farmed differently than other people. They would only, they basically only made enough for what they needed Mm -hmm. for that year. And then they didn't continue to plant, Hmm. which is very different from a lot of tribes that they kind of farmed, you know, annually. Right. And made sure they had enough. And this is something that I guess really bothered Olive. She was like, you guys don't do it right. You know, like, (laughs) why don't you make sure you have enough? Like, what if, you know, things run out? She's over there, like, explaining to them how to farm. Like, peace coring all the way. (laughs) Um, Listen. This is how we do it. And it's better. I don't know if you know this. They also, they were fishermen. They ate a lot of fish. They Mm. made pottery um, from clay and crushed sandstone. They painted, I mean, they, you know, kind of all that stuff, Mm -hmm. but they made really beautiful pots and bowls and ladles and all this stuff. They made also these like unique like pottery dolls for children. Oh. And there's a picture of one on Wikipedia. I actually didn't copy it, but it's... It's not, I mean, I'm sure back then it was kind of cool. Right. But nowadays it'd be like, hi, here's my big pottery <laughs> doll. <laughs> it's like Just of, so creepy. It's super creepy. I love it. Yeah. And they would even put like human hair on them. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. When you see creepy things from the past, you know, like Halloween. Oh, yeah. From like the 20s or something. Oh, geez. And it's just like bags over and just so freaking scary. I cannot with that kind of stuff. It's so scary. So another big thing with the Mojaves is they were into tattoo. They tattooed Mm -hmm. their faces with lines and dots. And it was 
fashionable. Mm-hmm. There's some, I have some pictures of that we'll show. When they died, they cremated people so they could enter the spirit world, but they also tattooed their chins, mm-hmm. especially. And they said that this helped them know that they were Mojave and so they could enter the spirit world and go with their ancestors and be with the right people. And once somebody died, the names of the dead were never mentioned again. I read that someplace Mm -hmm. in an article. It might've been an article that was written in, in a, some kind of publication in Canada, where at the beginning they said it was like a warning, like, hey, there are going to be some mentions of local tribe members who have passed away in this article. So if you don't want to read, you know, and I was like, wow, that's an interesting warning. I didn't realize that was a thing. I looked it up and yeah, it's like there are some tribes that are like, you cannot mention the name of the dead. Right. Because it'll like disturb them in their afterlife or cause them to come back. I think that's the the logic, but I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't go too much further into that. So let's go back to Olive and Marianne. Mm-hmm. When they got to the village, everybody was like, hey, they were like so happy mm-hmm. greeting them. They sang songs to them. Others like tease them in a good way. And they gave them nicknames. And those were like terms of endearment, right? Mm-hmm. The nickname given to Olive and her sister was Och, O-A-C-H. And it was like a clan name. Mm. And they couldn't really say her name. But the other nickname they gave her, this is very interesting, was Spansta, which translates to rotten womb or rotten vagina. What? So wait, they would wait, call wait, her hold Spansta Oach. So here's what they say in the book. <laughs> Just hold on. So they were like, either, there's a lot of ways to think about this. Sure. So they said either she didn't bathe like they did, because they would bathe a lot. Right. And white people, or stinky, right? As hell, yeah. Because they would just be like, you know, damp cloth or whatever. I don't know, but <laughs> but I would think if she was really assimilated, she would have showered the way they showered. They were saying that maybe it was to tease her because somebody didn't like her, or they were right. making fun of her, or right. maybe she was like menstruating at some point when something happened, or they were saying she had a lot of sex during that time, which oh. was totally normal. Yeah, um, if she was assimilated in the tribe, mm-hmm. and maybe it was too much. And they were like, whoa, girl. Or what I think, and I don't remember if they mentioned this in the book, but she never had kids of her oh. own. So I almost wonder oh. if she was, you know, having sex and maybe had somebody or a couple boyfriend or a boyfriend or somebody, which she never talked about. Mm-hmm. But I almost wonder if they did have a bunch of sex and she never got pregnant. And they were like, oh, you have a bad womb. Yes. Right. That I kind of wonder if it's that too. Mm. I mean, I like to think that it's just like your womb is not good right? because you can't, you're not getting pregnant Mm -hmm. versus like you got a stinky vagina. Sure. (laughs) Like that's just really rude. So Marianne, younger sister, was always kind of sickly. She just wasn't as strong as Olive. Olive tried to take care of her. There were times in one of Olive Oatman's lecture notes, because later she went on to talk about things a little. She said that her sister used to tell her that she would rather go to a world where her father and mother had gone, meaning she kind of wanted to just die. Oh, wow. She was having a really hard time. She just was sick a lot. Mm-hmm. And she felt like she was a burden, I think. Mm. And it it's it was hard. And I, I don't think it's because people didn't take care of her. Right. I think they did, but she just wasn't as strong. As the Mojave people grew to love these girls, they actually tattooed their faces. Oh, wow. They tattooed their chins. This usually happened when girls approached, like reach puberty. Mm-hmm. And so they had this blue tattoo. It was 
they tattooed from a blue cactus. Okay. And of course, did the like tapping, the tapping method that initiates them to the Mojave tribe. And it basically ensured them entry into the Mojave afterlife. Mm. And it, it told other tribes that these girls were Mojave. Both of them were tattooed on their chins and their arms. And this was a traditional thing the women did. And they say that, you know, because a lot of people were like, she was held captive and she didn't want it. And it was a mark of a slave. You'll still see it now that it was a mark of a slave. Mm. But they didn't tattoo slaves because they didn't care about slaves. Right. They tattooed the people that they wanted with them in the afterlife. Right. It was a very special thing to do. And they said, of course, you'll see pictures of her tattoo and it's very straight. Mm. And very clear, which means that she didn't move. She didn't fight it. Right. She she basically like got it willingly. Right. You know, or else it would not look the way it's it does. She said they pricked the skin in small regular rows on our chins with a sharp stick until they bled freely. That happened. And then in 1854, there was this expedition came that came through called the Whipple Ex- Expedition. And it was kind of had two parts, a scientific expedition and also they were looking for a practical route for this railroad that was going to go from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean. It included scientists interested in astronomy, meteorology, biology, minerals. It also included this guy named H. Baldwin Mulhausen. He was a German who was a topographer, but he was also an ethnographer. So he drew and painted a lot of the Mojaves and anything he saw and witnessed. Mm. When they actually got to the Colorado River, they wanted to trade with the Mojaves and they kind of met and talked. And then on February 23rd, 1854, they started trading. They spent nine days with the Mojaves and they were, there's a lot about this in the book that they just hung out and they talked and they laughed and the women were around and they had some observations from the writings from the men who were on that, that were like talking about how the men were just these really tall, like six foot plus, mm. six foot four, like warriors with like paint and tattoos. And they just looked so like impressive, I guess. Yeah to these men. And they said that the women were not so impressive, that they were just like <laughs> kind of short and squatty and not very attractive, and but that they were really funny and that the women seemed to have very as much say in everything and could say whatever they wanted as the men. That's cool. Yeah. So during this time, the Mojaves really worked to help the surveyors and the scientists. They talked to them about the plants, the animals, minerals, and they said that more than once, the leaders of the expedition were formally introduced to various chiefs, Mojave chiefs. The chiefs held a national council that approved a proposed plan for the uh, road for travel and trade through their country was one. Number two, they decided how to show, oh, they decided to show Whipple and the scientists the secret trail to the ocean mm. where there was water and grass. And they also elected a high-ranking Mojave to guide the expedition over the route. This expedition stands out in the Mojave tribal memory as a time when people met government to government with the United States and jointly made plans for an accommodation with each other. It's like, this was a time when we were treated with respect and we gave respect back. We were treated like equals. Yeah. Working together, cooperation. And I just feel like that's just so sad to me. Mm -hmm. There was another thing I was listening to where they were saying, white people saying, yeah, these people treated us like we were inferior. <laughs> and I was like, of course they did. Yeah. But 
everybody treated Native Americans like they were inferior. Yeah. Well, I won't say everybody, but most people, mm-hmm. you know, as they moved through. And the Mojaves were always, they were, in, like I said, they were into trading. So they were kind of into this route because they're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, we can use this too. So it works out for both of us. The reason I bring this whole thing up is not only that it seemed like a really positive interaction, mm-hmm. but that they were there for nine days and the girls were there the whole time. Mm-hmm. They didn't see them because the girls never made themselves known, but they could have. Yeah. They were part of the tribe. Yeah. Their family was gone. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a family to go back to, but they didn't try to go back to their white people either. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So obviously they were happy. They were cool being there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And why not? You know, it sounds like, I guess if you're going to get traded to or be captive by any other tribe, I think these people are pretty awesome. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Their family was gone. That was their family. They were happy. Or was their family gone, Megan? <gasps> I thought they were dead. So Lorenzo... The 15-year-old brother had actually survived the beating and partial scalping and being thrown off a 20-foot embankment. Shut up! He lived. So after he heard, I mean, he was laying there like, I'm dying. I'm bleeding everywhere. I'm dying. My family's dead. Sure. I'm just going to lay here and die. But he didn't. And he could hear his um, sisters being taken away. Mm -hmm. And then he basically crawled, eventually was able to right himself. And he walked in a direction that he thought maybe backtracking from where they had come to see if he could find people. And he said like he felt like his brain was like sloshing around in his head. Probably because he had a very bad concussion. He had been beaten. Like I said, he was bleeding. He was a disaster. Some people found him. They took him back to, I think it was back to the Yuma uh, Where those last people were? Oh, Yeah, where the last people were. He ended up basically reconnecting with the people they were traveling with Mm -hmm. in the beginning, the ones that stayed back and were like, now we're good. And I'm sure when they saw him, they're like... We made the right choice. We definitely made the right choice. Those guys went back with him. and, And of course, their bodies were just everywhere of his family being like eaten by... You know, animals, animals. Yeah. And they couldn't dig because it was so the ground was so hard. So they just basically put uh, rocks mm-hmm. all over them. And throughout the years, their remains have been buried and moved and reburied. But there's a picture. You can actually see it now where the, the burial is. Once he got better and he healed, he went with some of the people that he was traveling with to different places. But the whole time he was like, Somebody please help me find my sisters. Yeah. So he was very adamant about getting help to find them. So the whole time they're, you know, staying with the Mojaves, he's doing that. So back to Olive and Marianne. Of course, Marianne's health was not good. Like I mm-hmm. said, even from when they walked out there, she did pretty well. They ate fish, small game. Sometimes they ate grub worms, mm-hmm. you know, is what it is. The summers were super hot. You know, it's the desert, got over 120 degrees, that's Fahrenheit, (laughs) during the summer months. And in the fall of 1853, it was very, very dry. And they suffered a complete crop failure. And so a famine went through and a lot of Mojaves actually died that Mm -hmm. year from just malnutrition or starvation. And at this time, Marianne really kind of started wasting away, even though it was clear she was dying, but Mm -hmm. Olive kept nursing her. And when the people were trying to give her food, they were trying to keep her alive. Marianne told Olive that she had been a burden to her long enough and asked her to sing hymns of their childhood and pray. And in 1855, Marianne died of malnutrition at the age of 11. Oh. Yeah. How was she, how old was she when they first began? 
Was it seven? It was like seven or eight. If you do, if you calculate, it looks like she probably was almost eight. Mm. And so by this time she was 11. So like around or 11. four years or yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Olive was just completely distraught. Yeah. And the, the women were really sad for her. Culturally, the Mojave practiced cremation, but mm-hmm. she wanted her to be buried. They did. They wow. allowed her to bury her and sing the songs and do all the things. They actually liked when they would sing their church songs mm-hmm. and they wanted them to sing because they loved singing. Yeah. And they thought it was really great, entertaining and pretty and all that. You know, so after this, Olive was really depressed and even her health started to decline and she almost died. But her her mom, the lady who adopted her, mm. took every bit of food, like a corn maze and just like like made it just for her. Wow. I mean, everybody was starving, but she was like, this kid is not going to go. When Olive was 19, so I remember she was first captured at 14. So this is five years later. There was a rumor that there were some white girls staying with the Mojaves. And this got back to eventually to her brother, Lorenzo. And so he went, it's very detailed in the book, but basically he found some people to help him. And there was this uh, Yuma Indian messengers, they called them, named Francisco. He went down to the village with a message from authorities at Fort Yuma. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, I know you guys have this white girl and we want you to give her back. But she didn't come. It's like really unclear because I'll go into it later, but she doesn't ever say really that she didn't want to leave. She never says anything about it. Right. But it's pretty obvious. And they were like, no, we, we don't care. You can't have her. There was like all these negotiations that went on for a while. Mm -hmm. But basically, I think in the end, they were just so scared of what white people might do to them. They felt like they had no choice. So after like this kind of back and forth for a long time, they brought a white horse, which I guess was more amazing than other colors of horses. I mean, but Jen, was it a real white horse or was it a gray horse? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was gray, (laughs) but we'll we'll say it was white. They brought some blankets. And also he was like, listen, you better let her go. We're going to give you the stuff or some bad stuff's going to happen to you. Dang. Yeah. They decided finally, we got to do this. Olive was escorted back to Fort Yuma. It was a 20 day journey. Topeka, the daughter that had originally taken her, went on the journey with her. Before she arrived, they gave her some Western clothing from an army officer because she was dressed completely Mojave. Her hair is like maybe like a light brown, Mm -hmm. but it was black because they used like some mesquite or something to dye her hair. Mm -hmm. It was cut in the same fashion as the Mojave women, which is kind of like short. It looks like they had bangs a lot. Right. She was topless. She, Of course, she had her tattoo on her chin, on her arms. She had paint on her. So they basically just scrubbed her down, put her in a dress, and then brought her into this Fort Yuma. And everyone's like, yay! And she's just freaking traumatized. Jeez. At this time is when they told her that her... I don't know at what point, but they say that's when she found out her brother was alive. Mm. But I feel like they would have told her but I don't know, maybe because right. she was negotiate. They were she wasn't part of those negotiations. Mm. But you would think that they would say like, "Hey, to her, like this mm-hmm. is an incentive for you to come with us. Yeah. Your brother is alive." I feel like she would have been happy to see her brother, and that mm-hmm. would have been a little bit of incentive. Yeah. But leaving people you love and the only life you know. Yeah. To go back to pretty much strangers at this point, she didn't remember English. Well, at all. Right. She only spoke their language. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she was completely Mojave at this point. Yeah. 
when she went back to that fort, Yuma, she was, there was, a, I guess, a childhood friend, Susan Thompson, that stated later that she was grieving. They say she was grieving and she was sad because she had been married to a Mojave man and given birth to two boys. Oh. Lies. So these are things she endured throughout the rest of her life. Which right. is people just making up a bunch of shit about her. Right. Because she just didn't say much. Speculation. Yeah, it's just all speculation. They just couldn't help, especially back then, right? They're sitting around at like tea time, like, girl, let me tell you. Especially this white lady who was held, who was stolen and held captive Mm -hmm. by these savages and they tattooed her because she was a slave, you know, like to keep her. And it was just wrong. And she did say that she was never sexually mistreated by Yavapai or Mojave and she never had children. Definitely stuck with that. She was later reunited with her brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that was good. You know? Sure. And I have a picture of him. I mean, hopefully they had a good relationship. It seems like they did. He took care of her. They kind of, they went, in the book, it kind of goes into it. They went to some different places. She ended up going back to school and learning how to, you know, speak her language again Uh and read and write again in English. In 1857, there was this pastor named Royal Byron Stratton. When he heard about this, he went and found Olive and Lorenzo. At this point, she was hardly speaking any English. Mm-hmm. He just kind of made his own book based on what he thought and the few things that she said and made a book called, uh, what's it called? Life Among the Indians or The Captivity of the Oatman Girls Among the Apache and Mojave Indians, which isn't even right. He did use some of the royalties from the book to pay for Olive and her brother to attend uh, University of the oh. Pacific. Well, that's good. But, so the book is not accurate. Mm-hmm. According to this book, right. they're like, no, no, no. This guy totally elaborated. He went with what people thought at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that she was a slave to the Mojaves. They tattooed, they branded her basically. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, all of that. But she went along with it because I think at the time, it was just a lot, right? So she went along with the book tour. She promoted the book. She lectured a lot, went around. And, you know, she was, people wanted to see her. Mm-hmm. They want to see that freaking tattoo on her chin. It's a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's, it's you have to think about it. At that time, there was no internet. There was no Us Weekly. What yes. are you going to entertain yourself with? This <laughs> is totally. the equivalent. This is, this is the equivalent of like, yeah, E! News. And she was also one of the, like a well-known female public speaker. Mm-hmm. And I think it was hard for her at the beginning, but she kind of got into it after a while. And this was right when feminism was starting to develop, I guess. Oh, like women are like, hey, we should vote. <laughs> But should we, they don't have periods or need anything. It's cool. It's fine. Um, In 1865, she was on one of her lecture tours Mm -hmm. and she met this well-to-do cattleman named John B. Fairchild. He actually had lost his brother in attack by Native Americans during a cattle drive in Arizona in 1854. Mm -hmm. So I I think he felt drawn to her Mm -hmm. because of that. And his mom and his sister had taking him to this lecture to see her because they're like, you know, you should come listen and what she, you know, endured, but they fell in love. He met her. He's like, come see me. Come Come look at my ranch. Come look at my ranch in Michigan. When his brother was killed was the time she was staying with the Mojave. I don't think it was the Mojave that maybe killed the brother, you know, all in the same area, I guess. So, Mm. and he really hated that book that Preacher Stratton wrote and he ended up buying as many copies as he could and burning it. And they don't know if it was to protect her yeah, because he felt like she was being abused by this kind of thing uh-huh. or 
Some speculate he just didn't like it. He was embarrassed. I think she probably was honest with him. And said, like, all of this is bull. She's like, I didn't, you know, those aren't my words. Mm -hmm. I feel like he really loved her and he tried to help her by doing that. Right. By being like, this is a load of crap. This guy used you and I hate it that he did that. And later, this guy Stratton went crazy, unfortunately, and died in a mental mental institution in New York State in 1877. He kind of went out and became a preacher and got fired because he was doing crazy stuff and then ended up in an insane asylum. Stratton, the preacher. Yeah, that's the story of him. I don't know. That's some bad karma right there. So Olive and John... Fairchild, because now she's Oatman Fairchild. They moved to Sherman, Texas, which is actually very close to the Oklahoma border. But at the time, it was like a little town that was booming. He opened a bank and they lived in a large Victorian mansion. There you go. She wore a veil to cover her face, her tattoo, because she probably was just like... Oh, like all the time? uh, When she was in public. Yeah. She did a lot of charity work, especially at a local orphanage. Ended up adopting a three-week-old girl named Mary Elizabeth who they called Mamie. I love that name. I actually have a trunk that, like an old shipping trunk in my Mm -hmm. house Mm -hmm. that is from family friends that somehow my grandfather's family were living in New Mexico a long time ago. And it was the time when the flu was just killing whole families. Yeah. They adopted a child who had lost her whole family and her name was Mamie. But she seemed like she had some learning disabilities or some, you know, mental health. I don't know what kind of disability she had. But Mm -hmm. I remember my grandparents talking about her and I have her trunk. That's cool. Down in the family. Yeah. Anyway, she spent, you know, all her time raising her daughter, loved her because she was an orphan and she adopted an orphan. It's really sweet. Yeah. During this time in the book, they talk a lot about how she complains about having eye pain and headaches, a lot of eye pain. And it was hard for her to write and do a lot of things. And I wonder why Hmm. or what that was from. But she went through a lot. Yeah. During, you know, between the ages of 14 and 20 or maybe even before that. But she lived a good life with her husband, very quiet, very chill, raising her daughter. Her brother, Lorenzo, died in 1901. And she actually died of a heart attack March 20th, 1903, when she was 65. She is buried at West Hill Cemetery in Sherman, Texas. There is the town of Oatman, Arizona, named for her family. It used to be a bustling mining and gambling town, but now it's a ghost town. It was part of the Oatman Gold District. So now it's a tourist stop. There's also a historic town of Olive City, Arizona. It's near the present town, Ehrenberg. It was a steamboat stop along the Colorado River during the Gold Rush days. It's now named in her honor. Other Oatman namesakes in Arizona are Oatman Mountain and Oatman Flat. Oatman Flat Station was a stage stop for the Butterfield Overland Mail from 1858 to 1861. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, I feel like there were a lot of people going west that got massacred and murdered, you know? And then they made a town around that area. Maybe, (laughs) but this, you know, this family is pretty well known, Mm -hmm. I guess. Here's a little other part of history. The U.S. acquired the Mojave Territory in 1853 with when they got the Gadsden Purchase that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. During that time, saw an influx of white settlers and farmers encroaching on their lands. Most of the Mojave tribe living in the region were forced to move to the Colorado River 
and Fort Mojave reservations that were established in 1865 Mm -hmm. and 1870. At the time, back when they were pretty thriving, there was maybe around 3,000 strong for the Mojave tribe. And now I believe it's less than 1,000 and very few elders who still speak the language. But it seems like they're working with the University of Arizona to make sure that language is preserved. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Some other notable captives... Some of these are very interesting. There was this lady, Cynthia Ann Parker. She was held captive by the Comanches. So she was born to Lucy and Silas Parker. They were from Crawford County, Illinois. According to an 1870 census of the Anderson County, she would have been born between June 2nd, 1824 and May 31st, 1825. Because you know how it was back then. They're like, eh, within a year is close enough. Someone here. So she was about nine or 10 when her family moved to Central Texas and built... Fort Parker on the headquarter, sorry, headwaters, headquarters, <laughs> on the headwaters of the Navasota River. And that's now Limestone County. So on May 19th, 1836, so this is, you know, several 20 years, so years earlier, there was a large force of Comanche warriors accompanied by Kiowa and Kichai allies that attacked the fort and killed people because they were like, why are you here? Yeah. This is actually our territory. Didn't you see the no trespassing sign? The the Comanches, they were known to be one of the scariest tribes. When you kind of look it up, Mm -hmm. they were known to be more brutal. They took five captives, including Cynthia Ann. The other four were released, but Cynthia stayed with them for 25 years. She completely forgot about her white lady ways and was completely Comanche. And it was said in the mid-1840s, her brother who was also captured with her, asked her to return and she refused. She was like, I love my husband. I love my kids. and I'm not going anywhere. She was also said to have rejected another na- this like Native American trader. His name was Victor Rose. He also was like, hey, let me take you back. I'm sure all these people were just like, why would you want to stay with these savages? Right. This is crazy. And she's just like, can you just leave me alone? Like, can I just live my life? Yeah. Please. There was a newspaper account in 1846 that talks about this other Colonel Leonard G. Williams trading party with Cynthia and that she was camped with Comanches on the Canadian River. And he also tried to get her back. And they were like, nope, nope, nope. We're not giving her because she didn't want to go. Yeah. So she never, ever voluntarily returned. But somebody actually, there was an Indian agent, Robert S. Neighbors, learned that she was there among the Tenawa Comanches He was told by other Comanches that only force would induce her captors to release her. She had married, I want to say Peta, P-E-T-A, Nokona. And she had two sons, Kwana Parker and Pecos, and a daughter named Topsana. That was in 18, like I said, 1848, when they had that information. In 1860, there were some Texas Rangers under Lawrence Sullivan Russ that attacked a Comanche hunting camp at Mule Creek. And during this raid, they captured three... Native Americans, um, and they were surprised that one of them had blue eyes and was carrying an infant daughter. And there's a picture of that with her and her infant daughter. This guy, another guy, Colonel Isaac Parker, was like, hey, that's my niece, Cynthia Ann. And she was forced to accompany her uncle to talk to this military interpreter because she didn't speak English at this point. And she asked them to send her sons, like make sure they were okay. And she wanted her sons. While she was traveling through Fort Worth, she was photographed. That's the photo I have. And she had cut her hair short, which was a Comanche sign of mourning. Oh. She thought that her husband was dead and thought she would never see her sons again. Wow. 
In April 8th, 1861, they say a sympathetic Texas legislature voted to grant her a $100 annual payment for five years and give her some land. She wouldn't live there. She kept trying to run away and go back to her family. It went to a legislature? Mm -hmm. She just wants to go live with her family. Yeah. That's crazy. It's so crazy. She was taken to a county home. Then she was moved to her sister's place. It said that maybe she died. Well, they said 1864, but there was an 1870 census that had her as age 45. Eventually, wherever year she died, she was buried at Fosterville Cemetery in Anderson County. It doesn't say how she died. In 1910, her son, Quana, moved her body to Post Oak Mission Cemetery near Cache, Oklahoma. Mm And in 1957, her body and that of her son, Quana, was re-entered into the Fort Sill Post Cemetery in Lawton, Oklahoma. This probably was at the behest of the tribe, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. In the last years of her life, she never saw her Native American family, the only family she really ever knew. Her son, Quana Parker, became the most influential Comanche leader of the reservation era. Mm -hmm. It's really sad. That is really sad. Yeah. And then one other one I'm going to talk about really quick was this Matilda Lockhart. This one is kind of crazy. She was a little girl. She was taken captive by Comanche Indians. They say she was probably born in Illinois around 1825. And her father had immigrated from Illinois to Texas because the the Comanche were a tribe of like the plains. So Mm -hmm. it seems like mostly around Texas and that area. And so they went there in 1828 and settled on the Guadalupe River. 1838, so Matilda was 13. She and four other children of Michelle Putnam were captured by Comanches and carried into the Guadalupe Mountains. People like, I guess, groups went out to try and find them, but it Mm. didn't end successfully. So they had somehow between whoever at Texas or the U.S. had tried to form a peace treaty with the Comanches to kind of like stop the fighting, Mm. work out some sort of agreement on land, of course. Under the terms of this treaty, and I don't, sorry, I don't have the name of it, there were 65 Native Americans, Comanches, led by Chieftain Mukwara, and they were, they brought Matilda to the authorities in San Antonio, and this was in 1840. There was a lady there who witnessed this and recorded it, and they said that Matilda had been very badly tortured, and then a quote was utterly degraded and could not hold up her head. Her head, arms, and face were full of bruises and sores, and her nose had been burnt off to the bone. Like, all the flesh was gone. It was just a scab with nostril holes. Oh, my God. They had basically beaten and tortured her. And he, she said they would wake her from sleep by sticking a chunk of fire to her flesh, especially her nose. And she was just covered in scars. So she was actually with the Comanches for two years. She started to understand some of the language she had told them that there were still 13 other captives that they planned to bring in one by one to bargain with. Oh, wow. In exchange for like supplies, ammunition, blankets, and probably other things. I don't know. Yeah. Since she was in such bad condition and they mm-hmm. still had these other captives, it caused this fight. It's called the council house fight. And it happened the day that she was returned. So it must have been when they saw her, people just got really pissed off. Yeah. The story goes that she never recovered and she died two or three years later. Oh, wow. Very sad. So the council house fight, I had to look this up because I'm like, well, what was that? This was actually also considered the council house massacre. They had brought, of course, there was all the Comanche warriors or chiefs that came over. And then a ton of soldiers from the Republic of Texas 
So this was supposed to be a peace conference. And again, it was on March 19th, 1840. It was supposed to be a truce. The Comanches sought to obtain recognition of the boundaries of their homeland. And the Texans wanted the release of their citizens that were being held prisoner. In the end, the council ended with 12 Comanche leaders shot to death inside the council house, 23 others shot in the streets of San Antonio, and 30 taken captive. The Comanche basically went back and tortured the hell out of the rest of their captives. Yeah. They're like, oh, really? That's what you're going to do? It was basically led to years of more war and hostility. Of like not really good negotiation? No. So I did read a little bit more that some of the captives, there were like three of them that they kept Mm -hmm. and that were assimilated like because they had already kind of adopted them. Mm -hmm. But the other one, and then one of them was Matilda's younger sister. She was like six. Mm -hmm. They roasted her alive. No. Yeah. The torture was... Brutal. Brutal. They flayed people. They did some bad stuff, but they were so mad. You know, they were like, this is what you're going to do to us. You know, we went there for peace and you killed. And just by the way, those 30 captive Comanches, they all escaped. So they got out eventually. I hate to end on that note because it's pretty hardcore. I'm sorry, but it just, things were so... So messed up. This is just a, a, another example of really bad communication and people assuming, making assumptions about things that they think are theirs and just not... Well, and also respecting. Not respecting other people as humans. Mm-hmm. You know, treating them as inferior beings that don't deserve respect. Right. I mean, imagine, imagine what could have happened. I mean, it's just not human nature, right? I guess right. it's just, this is a whole, this has happened all over the world. It's just terrible human stuff. But imagine if people actually respected each other. Mm -hmm. Those lines were respected. The boundaries and the territories were respected. Mm -hmm. And somehow these white settlers could have somehow immigrated and been allowed to stay in certain areas and live under certain rules. But that's not that's not how, you know, they and live yeah. peacefully yeah. somehow. But I think there were there are probably just so many, right? Well, and I think that there's just that I think faith has a part of it sometimes, um, but also I think arrogance of explorers and colonizers coming over and looking at these native people who live completely different than they do and being like, Well, that's not right. This is not how you're gonna do it. Like, this is how you should do it. You're not doing this right. We're going to take over this land because you guys don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And I think part of it is like going back to when we're toddlers and we have fights over like a toy. Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear, whenever I listen to things about history, that's always what it seems like to me. Down to the basics. Yeah. Well, you're going to, you're going to yank that toy out of my hand. Now I'm going to yank it out of your hand and hit you. Yes. You know, and then it just escalates and escalates from there. Well, I mean, because definitely the Native American tribes had wars with each other. Sure. I mean, so that was happening. Yeah. And that's that was kind of normal. Mm-hmm. I guess they would, you know, have wars over different whatever things that happen or territories or, you know, internally. Right. But they they fought back against, you know, these... The tide of colonizers. The assimilation. Yeah, sure. But it just was too much. At a point, they realized, I mean, they fought and they fought and they just lost so many people. And at a point, they were like, we have no choice. Yeah. We have to just go peacefully to wherever they Mm -hmm. send us. I find all of this, you know, history, 
It's sad. It's fascinating. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, this is just like such a little blip. Yeah. You really got to, if you just get some good books, make sure you get the right ones that are accurate, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Like, but do it, read about it. It's, it's crazy. I have an organization to support. Let's hear it. So I was doing some like looking around to see how we could support maybe the Mojave tribe that's, you know, still there in Arizona or some other, you know, nearby tribes. But this is really interesting. This is not something that you're going to donate to, but maybe you can go and sign a petition. Oh, okay. It's at honorspiritmountain.org. Basically, they proposed this Ave Kwame National Monument, and it spans about 450,000 acres on public land in Southern Nevada. It contains some of the most visually stunning, biologically diverse, and culturally significant lands in the entire Mojave Desert. This entire area is considered sacred by 10 human-speaking tribes, as well as the Hopi, the Chemehueve, basically including the Mojave. Remember, they were very, very spiritual. I think this was a mountain that was very important to them. They called it Spirit Mountain, and that's where the name Ave Kwame comes from. Mm. And actually specifically to the Mojave tribe. They were located on the eastern boundary of the monument. It's designated as a traditional cultural property on the National Register of Historic Places in recognition of its religious and cultural importance. There were some energy developers recently that tried to build a 30-acre wind farm in the heart of this landscape. And the newly proposed project heightened efforts to protect it because this kind of development would basically scar the value of the lands, degrade the habitat and their cultural resources. Yeah. There is a coalition of tribes, local search light, Boulder City and Laughlin residents, the Nevada legislator, conservation groups, recreation interests and others working to establish this national monument permanently to protect these lands. There's already a bill mm-hmm. that's out circulating, circulating, but it hasn't been signed into law yet. There's a petition if you go to that website. We'll put it in our show notes. Mm-hmm. I said it's honorspiritmountain.org. If you can go and sign the petition. That'd be great. That's easy. Easy peasy. That's all you got to do. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. That's right. That was a great, that was a great story, Jen. A little extra couple stories on the end there. But like, yeah, that was great. I I really enjoyed the book. I highly suggest it. It's only, it's a short read. Mm -hmm. So it's not crazy. I mean, in a short listen, I think it's like six hours. So not bad. bad. Uh, But Megan. Yeah. So what would you put in your emergency preparedness kit? Well, Jen, I was thinking about this and, um, you know, it's really about not being like being able to live where you want to live, being able to have autonomy over your own person. Wow. Imagine that being able to live how you where you want to live and with the people you want to live with and have your family and have your damn life. Love who you want. Anyway, so I would say that, you know how in some movies there will be somebody who's like the mob is after them or whatever. There's like a proof of death. Polaroid, right? So she would have needed something that was like a proof of death Polaroid from way back. But they remember they had those death photos. Remember the Victorian like death? They should have just done like she should have pretended to be dead. Yes. Right. Maybe, maybe even like put some kind of special effects makeup. Uh-huh. You know, just like a head get, wound? get some clay from the and just make it look like she's got this massive head wound and she's like dead, you know, tongue out, crosses like X's over the eyes uh-huh. situation. X's over the eyes. Take like coins on the eyes. Coins on the eyes. Take a picture, you know, send it out 
So that whatever that rumor was that she was alive, living with that tribe would be quashed. It'd be like, no, here's the picture of her dead. It's all good. Like that's yes. what that's what they need. A proof of death, it's, death photo. It was called postmortem photography. There we go. A proof of death. Uh, well, I guess just like a, yeah, you just need a good postmortem Postmortem photo. portrait. They just mm-hmm. needed something to show, yes. like some sort of witness protection program where mm-hmm. you, you're hidden away and nobody will ever find you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this This whole story reminds me of one of my favorite movies that a lot of people think is just stupid to be a favorite movie, but Dances with Wolves. Oh, I haven't seen that since 1990. Sure. I mean, I, <laughs> when did it come out? I've watched it pretty regular. I would say every like two or three years, I'll uh-huh. watch it again. Uh-huh. Just Kevin Costner. I mean, I guess a lot of people don't really like Kevin Costner so much. He's not super popular. I don't have a problem with Kevin Costner. But he's not like... Super, you know, I mean, like no one loves him. Yeah. But I love Kevin Costner. Pretty much in everything he's in. (laughs) I'm like, you're just the greatest. He's the greatest. So, you know, when I was thinking about all this, I'm wondering, because these are just the stories we know of. Right. I mean, this was a long time ago. I'm sure there were more. For sure. Oh, for sure. There was actually another one I didn't talk about, but there's another guy who was, he was actually taken, I think as a Comanche, a young guy. Mm -hmm. He was with them for maybe like, all his childhood till he was almost 20. Mm -hmm. And he was fighting in a war as a Comanche warrior against (laughs) the white people. So I I don't know, but I think they did end up taking him back and trying to force him to get back to his people. And you have to look it up. I think his name was Herman or something. Anyway, he didn't know his name. His mom and everybody was like, do you know who we are? And And he's like, like, nope. Nope, I don't know you. They didn't recognize him. He didn't recognize them. So he was another one, and I kind of meant to tell that story, but I bet there were so many that were never found. Oh, for sure. And they just lived their lives like they hid. They were good. They were like, hide me. Don't let anybody see me. Right. And just, yeah, went inside one of the houses or, I don't know, just threw a blanket over themselves. (laughs) (laughs) They needed some context too. Just cover up those, you know... Features, those those white features, especially the eyes, because you yeah. could stay out in the sun and get a tan and, you know, maybe blend a little bit. Well, and even with her, they dyed her hair. Right. But maybe the eyes are a giveaway. Well, I think that if you look at, especially these people, the Mojave people, they did mm-hmm. look very different. They they looked very different from her. You yeah. know, so I, yeah. I think either way, she just her facial features and how she looked would have just stood out. Really stuck out. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes... I just wonder what kind of life she would have had if she had been able to stay. Mm -hmm. But knowing that the hardships that a lot of these tribes went through, there was just no chance for that. You know, she would have gone back to living in a reservation. I mean, for sure they would have taken her Mm -hmm. regardless. Like, you're our people. You have to come back with us. Yeah. And she never was able to say much about it because, you know, she just didn't, she didn't, didn't have a voice. Well, yeah. And it was probably really painful. Oh, for sure. Because there's sometimes where something's happened and you just don't. You, you don't want to talk can't. about it. You don't want to talk about it. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. And also, she was doing what she needed to survive. Mm-hmm. So say she did have a boyfriend or a husband or somebody or she had a bunch of sex. You know, you can't <laughs> talk about that in yeah. that day. No. Oh my God. You know what I mean? <laughs> she just would have come out with one of those like revolutionary like books about women really claiming their uh, ownership over sex. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. She'd have been burned at the stake for sure yeah well that's it megan another another story for uh under the belt under the belt thank you for listening we really appreciate your support you're gonna die out there is produced by us megan and jen yep and edited by jonathan pillsbury you can support us by listening on your favorite platform for podcasts 
checking out our website or our social media accounts. We're on Twitter and Instagram at You're Gonna Die Out There. Or if you would like to support us through our Patreon, you can certainly do that. And there you will find an extra bonus episode every month and some sweet outtakes and science news. So until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. But Megan, yeah. we're just a bunch, you know, in our Puritan ways, we don't, we don't bleed and it's, we shouldn't have any pain. Listen, we should totally be okay. Let's totally fine. It's totally okay. You we, know what? We just need to suck it up. That's right. And keep going to work by God. This is America. That when we were Peace Corps, just sitting on the beach, literally just sitting on the beach with reading. a book and reading all day. All day. Sun, I would spend an up, entire sundown, day. Yeah. Like on a Sunday when there was nothing to do, mm-hmm. I would spend an entire day in a hammock and read one book. Yes. I read all of the last Harry Potter book, which is like over 800 pages in one day. Yeah. Because I woke sure up at like re- five yes. and I went to bed at like 11. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the same. It was just, I, I think I somewhere in some journal I had there, which I didn't really journal so sure, much, sure, sure. but I did list all the, tried to remember all the books I had read. Yeah. It was just like hundreds. Yeah. That's that's what I did. What else are you going to do? Oh, really? You hadn't read Hedy... Hedy... Hedy Potter? <laughs> Hedy Potter. You hadn't read that before you came out there? No. Oh. I was vehemently against reading it because my brother, who's seven and a half years younger than me, was super into it. And I was like, this is for kids. I am watching Ozark right now. Oh. And it's... There's a lot of that, like, you don't know me. Uh, yeah. Because uh-huh. it's just like... I. Originally, couldn't start watching. Like, I would fall asleep a lot in the first few episodes, and I didn't know what was going on because uh-huh. there's a lot. Uh, and somehow, I've made it through the first season, and it's actually, I was like, wow, it's actually pretty good. It's pretty good. It's just it's one of those shows that kind of bothers me because it's so anxiety filled, like constant. It's constant, and sometimes those things. And I'm like, are people really this crazy? Are people really this stupid? I don't know. How can you live your life like that? How can you? I'd rather be the person who gets shot in the very beginning and dissolved in a, in a barrel of acid first. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to survive the rest of I it. wouldn't, I couldn't sustain that kind of lifestyle anxiety. and anxiety ever. Yeah. Say, say the name again. Sponsta. I'm just saying it sounds like spinster. S-P-A-N-S-T-A. Yeah, it, it just, it sounds like the word spinster. I don't know. I'm just saying. Did she have a lot of cats? <laughs> I don't know if later in life she did, but That's so she should have. They said that the women were like freaking out about the men's beards, the white people's oh, beards, yeah. because the Native American men don't usually grow a lot of facial hair. Yeah. And that they told them that their beards look like talking vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> I am never going to be able to see a beard. <laughs> The same way again, and oh. I like beards. This is awful, Jen. I know. Well, imagine like coming from a place where like your men don't have that fuzzy right. facial hair. All and over that their hair face. is usually in your nether region. Exactly. Oh no! And they thought it was hilarious, which I I pulled that from the book. I was like, that is so funny. I actually was like driving and laughing. There's, I don't know what channel this is on, but apparently there's an episode of the series, The Ghost Inside My Child. The Wild West and Tribal Quest, a Southern American Baptist family claims that their daughter, Olivia, says she is a reincarnation of Olive Oatman. 
What? I okay. Got to check that out. Let me just back up. Ghost inside my child. Is this like a thing where children are like, I lived in a past life. Like yes. they know things about they somebody. They know things when they're like three. Right. They're like, I was in a plane crash. My name is this. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. I married a so-and-so. Yes. Yeah. Weird. I find that stuff like super fascinating because... I never really know. I mean, you know that I'm not... Well, if you were Mojave, you would believe it. Sure. Because they believed in dreams and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, spirits and just, everything. It's just strange to me. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. how would we I, know? I think if physics could somehow really prove the folding of time, then I would be like, okay. Well... But I just, I feel like I don't know enough. Well, maybe I'm just not smart enough. No, I think that I was listening to this thing the other day and it was like a lot of reasons why people don't believe in spirits Mm -hmm. or ghosts Mm -hmm. are because they're just, it's scary as hell. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. And I'm like, that's Megan. (laughs) She's just scared. She's like, it's too scary. So. What if I never became scared anymore? And then I was just like (laughs) fully communing on some like other plane of existence. That would be pretty amazing, but not you. Yeah, not at all. Now, I was also listening on that this other episode about um, that I was listening to. What was it? Oh, shoot. I was listening to Unsolved Mysteries podcast. <laughs> oh, there's a podcast. There's a podcast and it's. I love unsolved. I love and I mean, simultaneously hate unsolved mysteries because they are unsolved. Like I want the solution. <laughs> Give me. Yes. Solve this. But a lot of times they do get solved because if they're looking for someone and they put the information out, that's how they catch a lot of people. That's my favorite thing on an Unsolved Mysteries episode was when they would have the update. It was like, I love the updates and I loved when like long lost family members would find each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's that's the shit right there. But it is. It's pretty. The the, uh, not announcer, but the main host. The host. Yeah. Jesus. What? <laughs> like, I should know that. So the host has this, like, super deep, kind of loud voice. Mm-hmm. It's kind of great. That's great. Um, but there was this episode on ghosts in this, like, old, like, jail, old jailhouse. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about the difference between ghosts and spirits. I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, spirits oh. are people that went to the light, like, moved on. Oh. Like, they're out doing their thing, but they can still, some can still communicate or reach out to this plane sure yeah whereas ghosts are people who didn't move on because they're either scared or angry or unresolved unresolved yeah and they stick around and just like Mm. bug people interesting and be gross yeah for the most part gross or sad and scary anyway 